Sometimes I'm strong, sometimes I'm weak, sometimes I fall in my wandering, but through it all, there's just one thing more precious than the air I breathe. Grace, amazing grace, unfailing grace that saves my soul and grace unending grace unrelenting grace that won't let go you took our sin you took our stain you took our guilt now there is no shame this our reward, eternal crown, the endless song. How sweet the sound of grace, amazing grace, unfailing grace that saves my soul. When God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. You are holy, Lord Almighty, God, you reign worthy, none more worthy, King of glory, God, you mystery and fearsome power you rise 
light upon the clouds and walk the seas. The valleys rise and mountains bow before you. The earth and heavens tremble when you speak for you.
Davey, do you rock that? I was just thinking, uh, I was just thinking, you know, we, um, there, there's a lot of things the Lord allows us to do, and it's fun to come into church and sing together and, and read scripture. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on around you. you. Most of you probably don't see in the children's ministry and student ministry. Katie, how long have you been at Carpenter's Way? Almost 10 years. Katie, you've grown up in our children's ministry and our youth ministry. And uh, i got to tell you, this young lady loves the Lord. This is, uh, we don't just put people on stage. It's a shepherding position. And uh, I'm so proud of your walk with God. I, I really am. I am. And I, I just... Uh, you can go. I know you're wondering when you can leave. You can leave. But, you know, if you watch too much news, you think the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and actually that's not news. All you got to do is read the Bible. But there is hope. There's hope. And uh, Katie's an example of that. God is working in young people's lives and old people's lives. He's transforming lives. And uh, that is a godly young lady. And I've told you before that one of my prayers, and I know that it's not politically correct, is my prayer is that God would raise up young men who could marry young godly women for, in the church, and we can have godly families for generations to come. And uh, it's, it's kind of laughed at, you know, and, but, but let me tell you, there is no better place to find a spouse than in the church. No better place. And, uh, man, that is one godly young woman, and, and someday when God provides for her husband, that is going to be one blessed guy. I'll tell you, she's a great kid. I know her. I know her family, and she's blessed. And if you are a parent of a young kid, and they have a demon in them, so did she at one point. <laughs> Just a little bit of exorcism and a lot of blood, and the Holy Spirit changes a lot of stuff. <laughs> but you hang in there. You hang in there, because what you're doing is from the Lord. Uh, the answer to our country's problems is not better polit politicians. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's not more morality. It's not even an overturn of gay marriage or Roe v. Wade. It is men and women being filled with the Holy Spirit and walking with God. That is the answer. And us raising young men and women who love the Lord. And uh, 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 that's, that is the answer to the battle in which we find ourselves. Uh, it is not going to, it is relentless. This battle that we're in is relentless. And Satan is highly effective. He always has been. But I got news. I know the end. I've read the end of the story. If you haven't, check it out. We win. Uh, actually, our dad wins, and we're blessed on behalf, uh, on his behalf. So, so take heart. Don't get discouraged. Uh, that is, uh, look around you. I mean, sitting up here, seriously, it's been said the last few weeks. I don't know what happened about a month and a half ago, but your singing has been phenomenal. And if you sit in the back, I get it. That's probably where I'd sit, except you miss some of the great music. I, I, I'm telling you, to listen to you sing is just, uh, is just a blessing. So we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 17 this morning, the story of David and Goliath. We've taken a couple weeks off because of Easter. The story of David and Goliath has become folklore for both religious and secular communities alike. It is, uh, ironically, it's not really um, just a bigger-than-life story in our Western culture, uh, but it actually appears that the human author of Samuel, that we believe is Samuel, wrote it to be bigger than life, even to his Hebrew audience. Um, this account is longer than any other Davidic narrative rela uh, relating to a single battle with the enemy. It's, it's a long story. Uh, the writer quotes the characters uncharacteristically. He quotes the characters at least 22 times. That's more than any other of its kind in the, in the Old Testament. Also unique is that he quotes Goliath extensively and tells us what he's thinking when little Davy shows up on the battlefield. 
That's something that's irregular in Old Testament stories. And also unique to this story is its descriptive nature. For instance, it tells us the weight of, of Goliath's armor. It tells us the number of cheeses. I don't think it's cheese loaves. Is it cheese loaves? It tells us how many cheeses are in the basket that David brings, how many loaves of bread David would bring to his brothers, and how he actually gets the stones with which he takes, to, uh, he takes Goliath on. The story of uh, David and Goliath has become somewhat of a metaphorical illustration of the little guy defeating the big guy with a few stones. Uh, this big guy being better financed, better prepared, better trained. And even within the church, its lesson is often on how to overcome the giants in your life. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that really the point? Is the point of this lesson to teach followers of Jehovah how to better equip themselves for the giants of their lives? Because that's, that's about 90% of what you'll get when you hear somebody talk or you read a book on this story. So this morning, what I want us to do is take a look at this very familiar story together, and I want us to discipline ourselves, not to reading into the text what we wish it said, but actually look at what it says and try to discover together what the point of this whole thing is. And I think if you stick with me, you're going to be a little bit surprised. Father, I ask you to teach us now to uh, protect us from our prejudices and our own ideas and give us the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Samuel 17, 1 says, The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Soka and in Judah and Azkah at Ephes Damim. Notice I was careful how I said that. That was a joke. Lighten up. Saul, thank you. You all laughed. That was great. Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley between them. If you remember from our study before Easter, the historical context uh, is uh, that God has removed Saul from being the king, although he's still seated on the throne. God has anointed a little boy by the name of David, a little unknown kid, to be the next king. Although uh, Saul is still on the throne, David's time has not yet come to take that throne. God's spirit has left Saul and is now on little Davy, as we'll call him. God, however, in his sovereignty, and in only the way God can do, made this little boy with incredible gifts. And those gifts would be needed as God sent a demonic spirit to attack Saul so that Saul would be restless and angered and his people around him would try to find somebody that could calm him down. And we studied a few weeks ago that in Hebraic things in Old Testament, it was believed that the harp music to the Lord would soothe in spiritual warfare. So they called, they began looking for a young man or a person, a man or woman who could come and minister to Saul. And they just happened to come across one of Jesse's boys, little Davy, who played the harp and wrote music masterfully. And he would bring him in whenever he was being tormented. Ironically enough, putting him in the presence of the throne room was the beginning of the internship for the next king. God had preordained this and planned it. So... We find ourselves in chapter 17 now where we really don't know how much time has passed from chapter 16 to chapter 17. It must have been some time because if you recall when at the end of this story when David, and we'll get into this next week, when David actually stands in the presence, the king doesn't remember that this is Jesse's sons. His looks have probably changed. And not only that, his re recollection 
of when David started. Uh, up to this point, David never stayed in the presence of Saul, but was only brought in when he was absolutely needed. What we do know is that David is somewhere underneath the age of 20 years of age because history tells us that everyone, every Jewish boy, 20 years of age or older, would spend time serving uh, in, the king, in the king's army. As, as chapter 17 opens, we find the Isra uh, Israeli and Philistines army facing off, off on opposite sides of the Valley of Elah, a few miles outside of Jerusalem. Verse 4, then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. Probably nine feet nine inches tall. That put him, puts him just a few inches short of a basketball hoop. That's a big boy. He wore a bronze, now picture this, a bronze helmet. And the bronze coat of, ma of mail weighed 125 pounds. Verse 6. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. Bronze. You know why, right? To intimidate. These things must have shined in the sunlight. Not only was he nine feet nine inches tall, but he's wearing an armor of bronze. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? I am a Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul said, uh, and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. This guy was in, impressive. And if you can wrap your mind around it, there's never been a drawing or a picture quite as amazing as this must have been. This was probably shined bronze. And, and, and I don't know how much uh, you are or have read on Roman or historical armament, but one of the most important things that a, a military man would do before he got in battle is put on his armor. And the purpose of armor isn't just to protect the warrior, but it's to intimidate the opposite side. This man's, this man's bronze probably shined everything from his spear to his chest plate to his leggings to his helmet. So this man that we believe was nine feet, nine inches tall probably was another foot or taller just in armor alone. Uh, you are familiar with um, uh, intimidating kind of armor in Roman historical stuff. You know how the commanding officer always has that red thing on top, that big hairy thing? That's supposed to extend his height six inches. When he sits on a horse and he comes riding in with that, the enemy is fully aware that this is a well-oiled machine with hierarchy, intimidation, wealth, because you don't have money to waste. On the other side, history tells us that at this point, the Jews were very poor. It was not a wealthy nation, and they did not have a well-trained army. In fact, it, we, uh, we learned from history that they didn't even have uh, metal armament, that any armament they had that was metal was purchased from the Philistines. So later we're going to find that Saul offers him his armor. Well, that was purchased most likely from the Philistines that they're going to battle. So they didn't have it. It's believed from historically that the Israeli army was predominantly made up of men who were wearing normal gowns, normal, normal life gowns. So picture this again. 
maybe a Jewish army guy was carrying uh, some sort of wooden thing, remember Braveheart, a round thing, and maybe a stick, maybe a knife. But imagine facing off an over 10-foot dude that's shining in the sunlight. And we're going to learn that he would come out in morning and late afternoon. And in my mind, I'm wondering if that isn't when the sun shines behind him and in front of him. This is a real war that's about to take place. This is a real battle, real intimidation. Groups of people about, about to, to attack each other. And uh, different than I thought growing up, uh, there is reason to believe that this representative battle, we'll call it, was not a common practice. At least for the Jews it wasn't. Because when Goliath comes out, and I grew up thinking, and VeggieTales kind of teaches this, that this was a common practice back then, because then it would save lives. You would just become the slaves of the opposite nation instead of everybody dying in war. But there's a couple reasons that we believe that the Jews had never seen this before, nor were not, or at least weren't prepared for it. First of all, we know it because they didn't have a champion. There was no go-to guy, including Saul, who would have been uh, the king. And remember, the, the, the reason that Saul was chosen by the people was because he was the tallest among them. So Saul would have been their best bet at being their champion. He even had an armament. We'll see that again. But the fact is, he didn't go to battle. They weren't prepared for this. The second reason is, is that Goliath lays out a challenge so specifically in this text, and their response is terif uh, being terrified that the Hebrews must not have been used to hearing anything like this. In fact, I, I'd like to say that I think even the Philistines weren't used to it. Why? Because they didn't concede when it was over. If the point was to save your life, not to die in battle, then the premise underlying that is that I would rather be a slave than a dead person on a warrior field, right? Well, when Goliath is defeated, and I'm not telling you the end of the story because you know it, they run for their lives, and it tells us that they ran for 10 miles and their bodies are strewn along the route. So it is reasonable to believe that this was not a common practice, and if it was, it wasn't really expected. It wasn't expected that that's how it would play out. It was a taunting technique. Verse 12. Now David was the son of a man named Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons, Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. David's three oldest brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so that he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every morning and evening, Goliath, the Philistine champion, strutted in front of the Israelite army. Now, could you imagine that? This is psychological warfare. One day, Jesse said to David, Take this basket of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these ten cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report of how they're doing. David's brothers were with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting the, against the Philistines. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early in the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon, the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. Da David left his things with the keeper of supplies, and he hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. 
As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout as usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Very important. They ran the opposite way. Have you seen the giant, the men asked? He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward for anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. David asked a soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing the Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that is a reward for killing him. As mentioned before, the nation and monarchy were poor, not very well organized, so it was necessary for families to supply the material means for their sons who were in the war. And that's what led Jesse to send David to the front lines. David's journey would have been about 15 miles from Bethlehem, and he arrives as the Israelite army is heading out into the battlefield, probably in the morning. And he hears Goliath's rant, where for maybe the first time in his life, he listens to somebody actually taunt their God, actually stand against him. And then he watches his own people, including his brothers, turn and run from this man. And David didn't understand the reaction. Word had already, obviously already spread through the nation as well that Saul was willing to take on this champion's challenge and actually, if he could find a man who would take him on, he was obviously willing to repay him handily if, in fact, he won. David asked a simple question. How is this guy allowed to defy God's army? To be clear, the difference between David and the nation is that David is offended on behalf of God. Goliath's insults were not just verbal attacks on God's people. They were attack on the living God himself. And David couldn't understand how they could all just stand up and watch this take place. To David, it was more than personal. It was spiritual. It was a spiritual thing. Verse 28. But when David's older brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What are these... What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. Classic older brother move. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. Classic younger brother move. Then he walked over to some others, another classic younger brother move, and he asked them the same question and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. To be clear, things really haven't changed much, just technology. It is often our families first that discourage our spiritual adventures. And then when our families are done, usually it's the spiritually mature among us that discourage us. I, uh, I have seen many young Christians, just like you, come into the church so excited about God and walking with him only to watch them mature enough to calm down. What a tragedy. Remember, um, something that stuck out to me this week was I was thinking about what God said to Samuel when he was choosing a king that time David was chosen. Can somebody remind me, who was the man that saw Samuel thought would be the next king? Eliab, that guy. And remember what the Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. 
don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It would appear that this truth isn't just about choosing a king. It's also about how you look at your enemies. It's also about how you look at those who stand against you. Because to Eliab, to Saul, and to the nation's warriors, they had the exact same problem Samuel had when he was, thought he was about to replace Saul. He was looking at how a person appeared, not what was going on inside. Not what God was doing. The Jewish warriors, the religious Jewish warriors, the ones who worshiped Jehovah God, let me be clear, these were the people on the right side of the spiritual stuff. The Jewish warriors were too busy looking at the height of, his, of this loudmouth before them and his beautiful, terrifying appearance with all that amazing weaponry that they could only dream of having to remember who and whose they were. Back to our story. The king had gotten word that some guy, some guy was asking a lot of questions about the reward for being a champion who would defeat Goliath. So king sends for that man and unfortunately, a boy shows up. Look what he says in verse 32. David walks into the presence of the king saying, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll fight him. Little boy move. Shows up with his little plastic sword purchased at the Bible bookstore with a little plastic armor of God. Silly little man. Saul seems shocked, upset, and offended. Verse 33, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and even possibly win. You're a boy. And he's been a man of war since his youth. You see, Saul was stuck looking at the outward appearance, which explains why he's hiding in his tent with a body of armor in front of him. But David doesn't stop there. He puts out his resume. But David persisted. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or, or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Pay attention here, because this is important. I want you to see what really happens. David begins by telling Saul that God, has given, that God has given him victory over bears and lions. That it was God. And, and that he should have probably been defeated by those things. And now he's telling Saul that God, the same God that protected him, will now protect him from this loudmouth, over-hormoned giant with ridiculously heavy armor that's talking smack. Not just against them, but talking smack against their God. I want, to pay, I want you to pay attention here, because David is not saying that he's good enough. In fact, it appears to me that David thinks there's no way he or anyone else on their side could ever possibly lose to this over-hormoned guy. He can't imagine it, because to David, this isn't a secular battle. This is a, this is a, this is a sacred battle. To David, this isn't about some nation of Israel who have a bunch of guys with cloth tunics on taking on a bunch of people with, with iron swords. This is about God's people taking on pagans who are bad-mouthing their God. 
To Saul and his army, this was about man-to-man combat. But to David, this was about God. Let me say it again another way. To Saul and the Israelite army, the religious people, the people who are on the right side of the the religious world, this was a secular event. But to David, it it was sacred. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. I don't know why he consented here. Maybe Saul was tired of listening to this guy 80 sometimes. Maybe he thought, let's get this over with. At least I won't, I won't lose a warrior. This boy will die, but at least we'll be slaves, but we'll be alive. We've been enslaved to the Philistines for years before. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David put it on, he strapped the sword over it, and and, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. Again, when Saul consents to allowing this boy to go into battle, he arms him with secular armament. Because that's what Saul thinks this is about. But that's not what David thinks. Out of respect, he tries it on. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. Instead, he picked up five smooth stones from the stream, and he put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed with only a shepherd's staff, (laughs) picture this, this guy's that tall. No, he's not. He's probably about the size of Saul. He's probably mid-teens. He's got a shepherd's staff in one hand, some rocks in another, a sling. He starts out across the valley to fight the Philistines. God had used these things to protect him before. Why wouldn't he now? He's a silly little man. Verse 41, the big adventure. Goliath walked out toward David with a shield bearer ahead of him. That wasn't even included up to now. So he probably has a huge square shield made of bronze on top of everything else that's being carried by a guy. It's probably 125, 150 pounds. That man is fully devoted to doing nothing but carrying that shield. He sneers in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? Are you kidding? Even Goliath identified that this this stinky little kid is treating him like, like an animal. This is what you defeat animals out in the field with. And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. You see, Goliath, although invoking his fake gods, thought this was about strength, training, and ability. To be clear, Goliath, like Saul, like David's brother Eliab, like the whole army of Israel, thought this was a secular battle of two nations going against each other. But to David and God, watch this. David replied to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. Take a deep breath. 
He's calling out the army, uh, the, 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 the tools of war. You're attacking me with a sword, a javelin, and a spear. Here's what I'm coming to you with. I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And today, you loudmouth, large so-and-so. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I'll kill you, and cut your head off. <laughs> Such a lovely, peaceful war. And I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world, here's the point, the whole world will know that there is one God in Israel. Why is that a big deal? Because that's all God has ever wanted to do forever. Do you remember why the 10 plagues came down on the Egyptians? It tells us that so the world will know that one God, Israel's God, is alive and well. Do you remember why Elijah, God answered Elijah's prayer and sent fire down from heaven to lick up all the altars of Baal? to let the world know, to introduce himself. This has always been about God introducing himself. This was not about one little boy taking on a big oaf of a giant. This is not about that. This is about God. God is the central character of every verse in Scripture. Actually, God is the central character of everything. When you look up at night at the stars, God is the central character in that. Romans 1 tells us, that when you look up and see the inalienable qualities of God, the innate characteristics of God, his power, his divine power, you know the existence of God. God doesn't believe in atheists, and I would argue that there's no such thing as an atheist. Somebody watching on the internet right now just growled, I'm an atheist. No, you're not. You can't prove God doesn't exist. Well, you can't prove he does. I don't have to. I'm not here claiming that he doesn't exist. You can't prove that there's not a dollar in this room. You can't prove that there's not a rat under this, under this stage. Oh, yes, I can. Let me go under there. You would have to be everywhere at the exact same time to know that for a fact. You can't prove in atheism. Atheism is an absolute negative. It doesn't work. You can be an agnostic or an ostrich or a purple people eater. You can say, I don't know if God exists or not. That's a respectable atheistic position. But atheism, you, you can't prove a negative. I can't prove that aliens don't exist. I can't prove that. At least I'm honest about it. But the fact is, in this battle, God is introducing himself through a little boy, and that's why he used a little boy. He did not use a little boy so that we could learn that little boys can defeat big boys. He used a little boy because there ain't no way on this earth that if this is a secular war, that little boy wins. You have raised kids or grandkids, and on the way to the battle, he trips and breaks his nose. And then he goes home crying. I got a broken nose. I don't like having a broken nose. That's why God chose the little boy. That's why he didn't want to wear the armor. This was completely a spiritual war. David says, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and everyone assembled here. Picture it. He's looking at Goliath. The whole world, the Lord's going to give you to me today, and I'm going to feed you. I'm going to cut your head off, dude. You're about to lose your head. And then I'm going to feed your people to the birds of the air, and I'm going to do all this so the whole world will know that God is real, the God of Israel. And then he looks over his shoulder at his brother, and says, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with a sword and a spear. Hello? 
this little boy turns around and preaches. You guys don't understand this. Even after Egypt, even after God delivering you from the Philistines before, after everything he's done, you still need to know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with the sword and a spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us, you hairy, big, bronze machine. I'm adding some things. I don't know if you're noticing that. You see, when you're God's person, when you're God's servant, nothing is secular. Not your cancer, not your kids raising, not your culture, not your politics. Nothing is sacred, is secular, because every single battle you face is the Lord's because you belong to Him. We have forgotten that in the church, just like the Jews forgot it back then. Everything is God's. You and I have been bought with a price. We are not our own anymore. And whether we live or die in the battle, that is in the hands of our owner. And we have to get back to believing that. Because I kind of see myself more with the, the brothers. Iliab, you are such a loud kid. What do you know? I know God. I, I want to I, I point something out, and, and I hope this hits you like it hit me this week. You need to pay attention here because this is bigly important. I've been wanting to use that word for a few weeks. Most of the stuff you're going to get from the church on this, on this lesson is exactly the opposite of the lesson. For instance, you have probably heard a message or read a book on learning to find the stones to beat the giants in your life. Is that not exactly the opposite of what David says here? You come at me with a sword, spear, javelin, rocks, uh, loud mouth, bad breath, a big booty that can sit on me. You, you come at me with human stuff. But I come at you in the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies. We are still in the church trying to figure out how to use God's tools to get what we want. There is no secular. Everything we do is God's. And we still try to find... It's almost like we want to invade the Philistines' camp, get their armament, make sure it fits, run back to our side, and then take them on. And then God will defeat in, name, in the name of God. That's exactly what we teach on this text. This is not about a little guy defeating a big guy. This is about a God that they had forgotten about. This is about a God that, that they didn't trust in anymore who wanted to show up and introduce himself on the battlefield. That is all this is about. It's not about spears and javelins and rocks that you bring to giants in your life or that defeat them. Because when you're God's kid, it is God who owns you. It's he whose servant you are. It is he whose child you are, your owner, who, and he is the only one who gives us victory as he defines the victory, not us figuring out how to fight better. It's a faith issue. So here it goes. That's why the Israelite army wouldn't face Goliath because they couldn't figure out in their own power how to beat this man. The battle, what they didn't understand, wasn't Israel's or David's or Saul's or even Goliath's. It was the Lord. And look what happens in verse 48 because of it. This silly little boy is so committed to that thought that as Goliath moves into attack position, I've heard enough. It's time to squash you. 
He moves into position in verse 48. He moves closer to attack. And what does that silly little boy do? He runs out to meet him. And do you know why? I read one theologian this week that said because agility was his greatest tool. How hard do we work? How hard do we work to excuse away faith? You see, David was excited to take this giant on. He couldn't figure out why everybody else wasn't excited to take the giant on. He had defied the armies of the living God. He had defied God himself. And it didn't make sense that God's people wouldn't want a front row seat to watching this guy lose his life. David ran to face Goliath because he was excited about this event. He had a front row seat to watch God defeat this over-hormoned, over flashy God-smacker, so he runs to see what God would do. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with, uh, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The, so, the stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then he ran over and he pulled Goliath's sword from his sheath. Whoa! He used it to kill him and cut off his head. That was messy. This was a messy boy. I mean, then he carries it around, which, which is kind of twisted, but that's another discussion for another day. Please understand, this story that you know isn't a story about a little guy winning with, uh, winning with an application for us and how to defeat the giants through personal will and courage. It's a story about realizing whose we are and in whose faith we defeat. Who do we walk in? It's about faith that makes you beautifully naive. It's about faith that you fall back on and fall forward on and fall sideways on because it's all you got. It's about trust. It's about wonderful trust in the King of Kings who happens to be our daddy. This story that you know so well is about a whole lot of religious Jews who sacrificed and prayed and did their religious responsibility to God but had lost their faith in God and had placed it in themselves, their abilities, and what they owned. Interaction with God had been relegated to religious events done on a regular intervals, but everything else in their lives were secular events to be handled in regular fashion with brains, brawn, and personal ability. The theme of this whole section of Scripture has to be the key verse, 1 Samuel 16, 7. It has to be. The Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by appearance or height, for I've rejected him. This part, the Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you think Trump is the devil, just so you know, he's no bigger than Goliath. If you think Nancy Pelosi is the worst thing that could ever happen to this, this country or, or gay marriage or whatever you think it is, I got news for you. You need to take this to heart. If you think our country is falling beyond repair, make her great again. I assure you, the only one that can make her great in the first place is when God's people bow the knee. There is some 70% of people in this country claim to have a born-again experience. The problem is not your political affiliation. It's your affiliation with the King of Kings. If we want to see this world change, it will not be done with better military, whatever. I'm not opposed to that. But that's not what will change or make us safe. What will make us safe is surrendering to God and knowing that while they come at us with the sword and the spear, we approach them in the power of the Most High. And you know what? That's not about taking Russia on or China on or 
the other political party. It, it's about life. It's about life. It's about how to deal with a boss that's overbearing or a spouse that's unfaithful or, or, or an attitude or depression or cancer. Do we believe this is still God's? Are we still naive enough in our faith to believe that God's in control? I'm not. Okay, now you know where you stand. Go back and stand in line, Eliab. Go on. It's okay, but at least admit it. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I believe that while claiming, claiming to be worshipers of God, people today, and, and even how we deal with this story, we look to him, and we've begun to buy into a dichotomy of life, that there's a secular, that normal daily life stuff, that we live out our days, how do we pay our rent, and what do we do, and how do we deal with more normal life problems, and then there's the sacred, you know, worship services, and time of prayers, and Bible studies, and Christian music, and such. Ready for the drop the mic verse? Got another one for you. I'm not going to drop the mic. They're too expensive. Look at your screen, my friend. Look at your screen. For every child of God defeats this evil world. It's how you do it. It's how we do it. We achieve this victory through our faith. That's how David won. It wasn't the smooth stones. He was just doing what he knew to do. But what about those stones? He was going to work, my friend. Go to work. Yeah, but when I get there, my boss is nine feet, nine inches tall, a stink. You're looking at the outward appearance. Pick up your pencil and go to work. Pick up your ratchet and go to work. Pick up your hammer and go to work. Well, if he really trusted God, he wouldn't have taken the stones. What are you talking about? If he really trusted God, he wouldn't have moved. He would have just sat in the middle of the field and done this. God never said stop walking. He said keep walking. You know, I know, I know it seems unfair. I mean, it, it really does kind of seem unfair, but you know the mistake that the disciples made when they got in the boat the day of the big storm and Jesus fell asleep in the back of the boat? You know the mistake they made? They stopped rowing. See, what he said was, I want to go to the other side. And then the storm came up. And then the boat started to fill with water. And so they did what we all do. They grabbed buckets. And then they start getting mad because they need help. They need one more strong set of arms and Jesus is asleep. Remember what he said the first thing he says when he wakes up? Where's your faith? What? We were about to drown. What good is faith if you're dead? I didn't tell you to go to the middle of the lake or the sea, panic because of the storm and stop, and stop rowing. I said, let's go to the other side. What does God expect from us? Belief. Well, he's not safe. What if I die? Oh, you will die. Unless the rapture takes place. And if you're scared of heights, you don't want to be raptured. I mean, it, it, it is what it is because of Adam and Eve. It is what it is. The question is, do we believe God of the, in the process? Do we believe? Do we still believe? Have we lost our naive, naive that thing? Have we lost our naivete? Have we become so sophisticated in our faith that we're so busy looking for deeper experiences, and deeper meanings, that we no longer just cry out to God and keep walking? This kid was so enamored with his God, he ran to the battle because he wanted to see what his God was going to do. 
He wants us to be silly enough to believe that since we are his property now, having been bought with a price, that every giant we face, every battle we engage in is always his, and he's got this. He wants us as his kids to run towards the giants in our lives, not from them, screaming, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. It's called trust, and it is the hardest thing you'll ever do, but it's the only thing that matters. Lord Jesus, make us men and women of faith. Give us a faith of that little boy. We see him as David King. He was just a little kid who had no clue about the odds stacked against him. And in that innocence, your power was clearly seen. So here we sit in East Texas, a bunch of Southerners that are disrespected by the people on the West and the East Coast, simple folks living out here with simple accents and value systems that are mocked. But we are your so while they come at us with Harvard degrees and brilliance and money, we respond in the name and the power of the living God. May we never concede the battle to the pagan or the secular people who claim to be the children of God who no longer believe in God. May we run towards the giants. Because we've got God on our side. In Jesus' name we pray. We pray for that courage. Amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes. If you're visiting with us, I'd sure like to meet you. I'll be up here. Come shake my hand. If, if you want to pray, we'll pray with you.